talk. Great. Here we are, ladies. Welcome to another episode of the Embossed Podcast, everyone. I'm excited to have you all over. Um, we, I'm going to be monitoring the LinkedIn chat. So if you want to give us questions, um, please go to the LinkedIn chat. I'm hoping that is going to update live um, and I'll be able to see your questions. Uh, today's topic, we're going to talk about central bank digital currency. And I'm looking over here because I have a screen with my notes. Um, but um, today's guests are Sangeeta and Diana, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. But first of all, I was telling them, I am so proud to have women that can represent this topic. Um, as you know, my podcast is about giving space for women who are in underrepresented areas to have a voice and a platform. And I'm super excited to have you both on, on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having us, Marina. This is so exciting. Give us, um, Sangeeta, why don't you start? Give us uh, your credentials and what is your involvement with CDBC, Central Bank Digital uh, Currencies? So happy to be here. So I am currently enrolled as a PhD student at the University of Hong Kong, where I am specifically focusing on the cross-border aspects of central bank digital currencies and how the, and the macroeconomic impacts of CBDCs on emerging economics. So this is directly related to my research area. Uh, aside from that, I'm also a fellow at the Digital Economist, where I work uh, with Nabrup um, um, on like different topics relating to blockchain, technology, gender role, uh, or gender gap, if I may say. So yes, these are like my uh, emerging research areas, I would say. By profession, I'm a lawyer. Um, I, I'm originally from Bangladesh. And uh, I acted as a assistant legal advisor at the U.S. Department of Justice um, for like three years before I decided that, okay, that's it. I need to um, quit my job and like focus more on the research area. So that's why I'm here. Yeah. I love it. Thank you so much. How about you, Diana? That's so exciting. Well, um, I'm very excited to be here. Uh, I work on central bank digital currencies from the standpoint, I write for Forbes, first of all, about central bank digital currencies and stable coins. And um, to give a little bit of my background, I, I used to work in development finance in the investment banking uh, branches of the Inter-American Development Bank and the World Bank. And that led me to see a lot of the inefficiencies of moving capital across borders. And I realized um, a lot of the frictions that we, we experience in, in the financial market infrastructure across, across the board. So that, that's actually what led me into this space. I've approached CBDCs from a standpoint of, of financial inclusion very much. Uh, right now I work for I, an investment bank also that focuses on, on blockchain, crypto, and also ESG. And when you think of ESG, uh, it's a lot about the governance, and CBDCs have, have huge implications on the governance of monetary systems, payment systems in particular, and, and basically what does money mean, right? I, I also wrote a book on, on ESG and, and, and data uh, because a blockchain is, is, is all about the record of data. 
and I run a blockchain discussion forum for, for Yale, where we also discuss these topics. Well, congratulations on all of your credentials. Amazing backgrounds, both of you. Let's start off with explaining what is CBDC um, and how is it different from any other digital asset that we may have, like a digital checking account or a saving account um, with a normal, uh, with a uh, commercial bank? Yeah, I can. Any of you? Definitely, Diana. Whenever mm -hmm. you feel like, uh, jump in. Just do that. So, uh, central bank digital currency. To like, if I want to just simplify, it's like digital form of central bank money. Whatever we have right now as fiat money, let's say dollars. So it will be a digital representation of that dollar, but backed up by central banks. And another important aspect of uh, aspect of central bank digital currency is uh, it will be accessible. I mean, the technology, uh, the technology that are going to be used in issuing that uh, digital currency uh, will enable the public to access to, to central banks' money, um, and it's going to be a direct liability of the central bank. So those are like few characteristics of. Uh, are, that are associated uh, with a CBDC. Uh, the difference is basically like one is sovereign backed, another is not sovereign backed. Um, we have like cryptocurrencies, other forms of like uh, mobile money, and then uh, stable coins. All are sort of like private initiatives or like uh, big tech companies initiatives, and uh, sometimes like it is. All are decentralized, in, not all are decentralized in nature, but like cryptocurrencies, stable coins, those could be decentralized in nature. But the fundamental difference is basically the, uh, the central banks is not a part of those uh, currencies. So that's, that's one thing. And there are like several other things, definitely. But yes, we can have the conversation going on and all the differences probably yeah. is like emerge. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Diana, I will add to um, that. I will say that the Federal Reserve in the United States recently uh, released their their first concept paper on on their vision for what a digital dollar or a U.S. based uh, dollar based CBDC would look like, and they define a CBDC like like uh, much in accordance with with what you Sangita mentioned. It's it is a digital liability of of the central bank, which in this case would be the Fed. And it's widely accessible to the general public. So what would this mean, really? Right now, the only form of money that is a direct, it comes directly from the central bank that is directly accessible for, for the general public is, is cash. Otherwise, we have intermediaries, money that goes through accounts at commercial banks or uh, through through some of the fintechs. Um, and, and both of those forms of money um, add an additional layer of risk, which is why commercial banks are subject to uh, um, insurance uh, and uh, additional uh, liabilities to, to show that they have enough reserves in, in the case of a liquidity event. And, and in the more fintech and digital asset space, uh, something like stablecoins is becoming increasingly 
scrutinized under the conversation of what would be potentially the, the prudential requirements, the um, federal deposit insurance requirements that should be required would these forms of money uh, become uh, to scale scalable. Um, and what's interesting about central bank digital currencies is that they would be a direct, a, a new form of, of providing a version that is as safe as cash through digital wallets to to people everywhere. So so that's that's an interesting innovation. And there's several when when you think about central banks um, issuing their sovereign currencies through CBDCs, there's a lot of uh, uh, design priorities that different countries have to think about, whether it would be a wholesale model or a retail model, for example, whether it would run on a blockchain or not on a blockchain and, and what the design priorities would be. And then um, also, obviously, like um, financial inclusion, uh, cybersecurity, privacy issues. There's a lot of questions that, that central banks around the world are, are still grappling with as they design their their versions of, of central bank digital currencies. I love that. Thank you so much for that. There's a lot of concepts here, a lot of <laughs> concepts. We talked about fiat-backed, right? One of the big questions about this is, um, is, is a CBDC just a different implementation of a money product is it going to be fiat back to this like in the same way that potentially some may argue differently but the dollar could be um uh insinuated to also be backed as well and the other concept also that i heard that was interesting was like decentralized versus centralized and so i was wonder if you could uh explain a little bit more about the maybe a little bit of the techniques that you've ex seen countries adopting or the arguments of uh, the sides as well? There's a lot to unfold here, to be honest. And, um, and I, one thing I can say that with so many, so much research, research is going on in space. And a lot of times, I mean, uh, Diana mentioned that it will depend on the CBDC's design. So there can be retail, yeah. there can be wholesale, there can be token-based, there can be um, account-based, and then uh, technology, the underpinning technology. So, and what are the role of the financial intermediaries as well? So we already have the existence of this, like this whole interconnected financial system. We already have established architecture. So what are the role these institutions uh, can play in an in a economy, in an economy that is CBDC-led. So those are the things that all the central banks are kind of sort of like exploring at this stage. However, we have, uh, I mean, I, I personally, I think that there are like four CBDCs because I know like a lot of, uh, uh, discuss, I mean, there are discussions whether whether uh, China, Chinese yuan should be considered as a CBDC or not, or Hong should be considered as a CBDC or not. So I'm not going to, Going into that discussion, I'd rather just say like there are like four uh, digital currencies, like sovereign backed digital currencies. And uh, one is like, as I mentioned, Cambodia, China, and uh, Bahamas, and also Nigeria. Um, so these are like four uh, CBDCs, and all are new. I mean, either like launched or in pilot stage. 
and the, the similarities are uh, in terms of like whether it's centralized or decentralized. Uh, at this point, like of course, central banks uh, has some sort of like centralized ledger to so that they can monitor the transaction. So the the infrastructure can be. Uh, for example, the Baygon, the way they are doing it, they use like Suramitsu, a fintech company, and their technology, Hyperledger, uh, Aroha, or I'm sorry, like Aroha probably. So they, they they use that technology where cover the bank actually like know what's going on in terms of transactions, but they, they deploy a private uh, fintech company to launch the whole... Yeah. To or like to run the whole infrastructure, and in, instead of like unlike other blockchain uh, technology, they are using like some voting powers of the payment gateways to finalize the transaction. And Got it. Everything is like to be honest, like since the technology is so innovative and it has so much, uh, so many potentials, all depend on the motives of central banks, like what they want to achieve, what to, what is their policy goal. For example, Cambodia focused on financial inclusion aspect a lot. And uh, yeah. the reason is like they have a population which is so young and they're like very tech savvy. At the same time, yeah. in China, they have like a whole digital infrastructure is in place. So it was easier. It's an easy transition for them uh, from like going some somewhat digital to fully digital, uh, but you do not. This, uh, sorry. Yeah, this brings me to a, a really good question, Diana. If you could um, answer is why would governments, um, sovereign countries, interested in implementing what? What is the thing that is pushing? Um, governments to implement a CBDC? What are the problems that we're facing right now that it's pushing this type of innovation? Well, first and foremost, I'm going to say that we live and function in a financial system that has been designed in many ways during and for the Industrial Revolution, right? So there's mm -hmm. so many levels and so many ways that, in, that are in, in need of innovation for financial services across the board, right? And yeah. when central banks are exploring this, this technology, there's a lot of benefits, especially when we think of blockchain-based um, systems to, to move money. Uh, it's, it's basically providing the opportunity for, for almost immediate, real-time, and extremely uh, cost-efficient clearing and settlement, which right now is, is very inefficient, very intermediated. There's all... Um, all these layers of intermediation that add additional fees and, and risk because there's a lot of uncertainty. In, in normal trading environments today, we've seen it's a, it's a normal standard to have T plus 2 for clearing and settlement to even happen. And, and the what is T plus 2, Diana? T plus 2 is, is that when a trade happens, yeah. the actual settlement, which is when the, the buyer... Um, the buyer buys and the sell seller sells that the money is delivered and the product is 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 delivered to to the opposite party. Uh, it takes two entire days to to figure mm. that out and to set that in stone. So that yeah. adds a, a whole layer of risk. The DTCC, for example, has been thinking about the these infrastructures for for a long time, and they they just recently came out with a paper where they're exploring how to go down the path of, of T plus one. So that's just one example of how the entire financial system is, is in many ways in need of, 
of innovation. And when mm -hmm. central banks are contemplating CBDCs, like I mentioned, there's many um, options of, of design priorities, one of which has been very popular and, and, and very, very um, uh, common is, is the concept of financial inclusion, because there are yeah. so many populations that have been unbanked and underbanked by, by the normal financial system. Um, if you take uh, the, the example of open banking and what that has um, produced and the opportunities that that has highlighted out of uh, the UK, it's clearly a huge opportunity to provide financial services for, for populations that are broader, right? And uh, the concept, I think, is interesting of CBDCs being designed as retail as opposed to wholesale, and I'm gonna go into what that means. A wholesale design for CBDC would be very similar to the traditional system, where only commercial banks have an account at the central bank where they can draw money from. I and, and you and, and retail individuals don't have the opportunity to, to draw money from the central bank. We have to keep, um, keep money in, in a commercial bank, which in turn keeps money at the central bank. Um, a wholesale CBDC would, would provide that functionality, as opposed to a retail CBDC, which would provide the functionality for individuals to access money directly from the central bank. Um, there's implications for both, but um, some countries that, that have been focusing on, on the retail side of CBDCs, uh, that could be a big opportunity for, for um, in many ways, programmability of, of a lot of social um, movements of money, like, for example, COVID, COVID stimulus money going directly to the individual. Um, and, and also another benefit to, to central banks that are contemplating this would be the ability to, the programmability of money, the ability to embed taxes and fees within um, transactions automatically and ways to conduct monetary policy in, in more streamlined ways through automated, again, uh, transactions and, and systems. Yeah, I, I love that, that notion. There's a lot of implications here for the end user. And maybe we take, since we started from the central bank standpoint, we take a 180 and start from a user perspective as well and say, um, you, you started uh, this conversation, Diana, when you said um, we want to create more inclusion within um, access of this type of financial uh, financial the financial ability to just people withdraw money directly from the feds. Uh, what are implications from or benefits that you see from the user side um, that this type of system can bring? Well, if you think again, that would that would point to a retail case of CBDCs where everybody yes. could be able to download a digital wallet like an app on their phone and hold money through that to be able to make digital payments. It's, it's all the implications that go toward the trend of going cashless. And and there's benefits to that. Um, inclusion being one of them, but there's also risks where privacy implications or cybersecurity risks are very much at hand and they're very top of mind in, in these conversations, um, which central banks really, really have to get right. 
precisely because of implications on consumer investor protections and and um, what that implies. Sangeeta, what do you think? Um, I think one of the aspects that CBDC and uh, one of the potentials of CBDC is to, uh, Diana already mentioned about like the latency and the inefficiencies of the cross-border transactions we have in the existing uh, architecture. So CBDC, because of the uh, the underlying technology and use blockchain or something like that is not blockchain, but like it has this potential of like being interoperable. So that interoperability uh, feature can make transaction like faster and then it can be it can happen in like even seconds. For example, the BIS innovation have they're uh, running some pilots uh, um, and, and uh, to examine the this like this cross border impact of this uh, uh, CBDC, it's called like NCBDC or like NCBDC bridge. So where they are trying to see like how the CBDCs from like different countries can actually create like an interconnected platform and then just like the transaction happens smoothly. So that would be a great uh, benefit for even from like an user perspective. Uh, because like people who are sending money from abroad, uh, one country to another, let's say remittance, they can do it like uh, within a day maybe. Um, and uh, yes, I mean that that part is like very important and uh, definitely worth exploring. Yeah, yeah. I would also I'm, ask uh, a couple of. Oh, go ahead, Diana. Finish no, up. sure. Please. And say that we need a lot of incentive alignment across all the stakeholders that would be involved mm. in CBDCs. You mentioned, Sangeeta, a great point, which is interoperability when we talk about cross-border payments or, or something like um, the dollar, again, or, or any currency that is widely used around the world. You need interoperability across different systems, across countries, but also interoperability with legacy systems within within specific countries in order for for this to to scale and and be actually implemented and taking a little bit of a product management mindset uh from the standpoint of the user we've seen already with the payments world and examples from the credit card industry it, it was actually really hard to get people to transition from swiping their credit cards to tapping cards and those behavioral questions and and how are people going to adapt to have a digital wallet how are they going to pay for something if it requires a slight change in in how they're going to tap or touch or whatever to what are they going to do to make the payment those behavioral aspects are actually really important too so again you can't just like create a coin and expect everyone to use it you you have to really think through the 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 user user how the user is going to perceive it and live it and experience it. I love that. Thank you so much. Um, I would, I wanted to ask some like maybe extreme questions um, just to set the stage of like, probably not, it's not going to be as extreme, but some of the fears we've heard many, many times is our central banks gone, uh, sorry, our commercial banks going to be completely, um, uh, erased right what another question is um is cash no longer going to be a thing and how are we going to deal with the elder population that is not used to even doing digital 
um, transactions. How are we going to give access to people who do not know how to use technology and smartphones? Um, and um, are we just all going to converge into one currency? And is the government going to have access to all of our finances? So um, I know the answer is like no to all of these, but I would love to hear your opinion about maybe um, you know, what are some other myths or myths or what are some other some trends that you've seen that can refute some of these extremist, more extremist questions? Uh, those are like some uh, really good, not, not good, but like, of course, I mean, most like important concerns uh, for even for regulators and uh, central banks. Um, and one of the fears, uh, as you mentioned, like, what's going to be the future of our uh, financial system or like the commercial banks. Uh, and, and that is why the uh, design aspect is so important. Uh, what would be the mode of CBDC? And if a country, whether they want to adopt a CBDC or not, because uh, you, you really need to have a motive, like a strong motive to issue CBDC. I mean, the examples we have right now, like for example, the Bahamas uh, or uh, Cambodia, they have like strong motives in terms of uh, financial inclusion, especially Cambodia. They 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 specifically uh, mentioned that we want to. I mean, rather, I think they also mentioned uh, aside from financial inclusion, they also mentioned about the strength of their own currency. So those are like motives that should help. Uh, if a CBDC wants to success succeed, definitely those are the, those are going to be the motives. But at the same time, I my personal opinion is uh, uh, about the whole financial intermediaries thing is like it's not going to be abolished because that is not that's going to be a drastic uh, measure and probably it's not very fruitful uh, if we want to have a sustainable CBDC rather to integrate uh, financial intermediaries in the design uh, so that it can be more effective. We have to use the legacy system or the system that we already have in place uh, to expedite the benefits of CBDCs. One thing. And second mm. thing about the privacy, uh, this is interesting because I, I have a different opinions about privacy. A lot of people will say that, like, okay, I want to be anonymous because I can use cash and nobody should know what I where I'm spending at. The, the, the concern here is, like, uh, especially from more from a like, legal and regulatory perspective, like, you cannot track uh, money laundering or terrorist financing when it happens in cash. So re when regulators say that, like, I want to track those things, they have a genuine concern. Another thing is that for a country, which is uh, who, the, the, the countries that already have like, uh, sorry, the countries which are, are cashless already, for example, Sweden, I mean, to what extent privacy should be compromised? That is, a, that is debatable. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not giving up my privacy. So in this regard, Bank of Canada, they have a paper on like how, uh, privacy can be incorporated in CBDC. And those are the questions for like the central banks, definitely. Like what kind of technologies you want to, they want to incorporate in CBDC's design. 
I had several work on federal machine learning and privacy preserving uh, technology. So uh, it's worth exploring whether those uh, high tech um, aspects can be incorporated in CBDC or not. So my only like my concern is like not to take any decision, um, like not to take any rush decision, rather just have a uh, understand the motives and the policy goals of CBDC is that what designs and technologies actually can bring the best of CBDC. Nice, thank you. Yeah, now what do you think? That's right. I agree. And I think we're uh, pointing toward a world where we'll see more complementarity and complementary forms of different currencies, whether they be privately issued or publicly issued. And uh, that will lead to financial services that are more tailored to specific communities and specific use cases, which is something that we're already seeing with the explosion of DeFi. With regard to your question on what's gonna to happen to, to the banking system and actual banks, I, again, no, I don't think banks are gonna go away and it would be really bad if they did because it would have huge implications on liquidity risks and, and um, just they're they're there overall our country right? yeah <laughs> yeah like the risk of bank runs and and uh it would have a huge disruption also on mm. on the way people access financial services today um totally. i think the role of cbdc's and blockchain technology in general with decentralizing certain aspects of financial market infrastructure could have many benefits for for things like systemic risk the role of the narrow banking sector and when we talk about going back to lessons learned from the financial crisis and opportunities with uh, decentralization to have um, infrastructures where there's no longer a single point of failure where a, a single entity could take on way too much risk such that when it can't handle the, the excessive risk, it'll spread it across the entire system. I think there's solutions to that to that with, with decentralization and, and infrastructures on which CBDCs could run. And finally, when we talk about privacy, um, I don't think it's black or white. I think there are ways and there's, there's compromises that are, are being uh, explored, whether it be the role of using third parties to manage um, sensitive data and, and AML, KYC, um, whether it be um, the use of, of technical terms like like hashing and, and the pseudonymity that could be embedded within within blockchains to to record transactions, so that protections of, of sensitive data could be embedded within within the entire system uh, are are possible, and within the EU blockchain observatory and particularly the the privacy authority of, of France has come up with very specific uh, and and potentially beneficial uh, ways that the blockchain on its own could be uh, made to be compliant with with GDPR and the right to be forgotten and, and those those requirements. So there are ways, uh, I think, uh, regulators and and institutions and public and private institutions are going to have to collaborate align incentives, public-private partnerships are going to have to be very, very important uh, in order for um, coming up with a system that fits within accepted and regulated 
spaces, but also draws from the competitiveness of private sector solutions on a, on a technical level. And, and that requires broader coordination and collaboration, which we're seeing, and it's a very exciting time. I love that. Thank you so much. I have one more question from the side of the the central bank, and then I will have to move more on the user-centric portion mm -hmm. of this. But my question is, and I'm still confused about this, because I was reading a lot of art articles around this. There's like, there's, there's, even today, there is a lack of understanding around valuation of dollar, right? And, and how, how we determine the value of a dollar compared to the value of um, euro or uh, yen or any other currency in the world. And my question is, when you think about valuation of the CBDC currency, whatever, whichever is going to be implemented, what do you think about the value and how do you think that value is going to be established? It is, is it similar to how we think today of the U.S. dollar, or is it going to be something different? Mm -hmm. uh, this is a very complicated question, to be honest. <laughs> no, I mean, I really understand this is a very uh, legitimate question. Um, so as of now, the discussion is basically that a CBDC should be valued in terms of the national integer account. So it's one is one is to one, I basically. So uh, uh, so one dollar to one whatever CBDC one, currency. Yes, one digital dollar would be like one physical dollar. So that's the current discussion. Um, what's going to happen in future and how this like whole valuation would work? To be honest, I mean, uh, Diana, do you have an answer? Because right now I'm, I'm feeling like okay, uh, because we had this, we had the histories of like whole uh, valuation system, like from gold. Uh, to gold reserve to like exchange rate, floating rate, fixed exchange rate. So is there going to be a next uh, valuation standard? Who knows? But at this at this point, like nobody is uh, discussing about it. So Diana, if you have any insights on that? Yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of factors that come into play. There's a lot of uh, potential open questions. Theoretically, it should be one-to-one, one one, a fiat currency and, and the digital form of the currency. That's the way it's supposed to be designed, but uh, it has to be done well, right? Drawing, again, to the example of, of stable coins, which to some extent uh, have have tried to, to fit some of the that use model. cases that CBDCs could potentially go into once they're launched, um, stablecoins had, a lot of stablecoin issuers had problems with actually showing that they had enough reserves that would be equivalent to the money that was in circulation. So that reflected negatively on, on the peg. So the peg broke and it goes up and down and it fluctuates. So, so that's not an ideal. Um, ideally with, with central banks, which are the people who issue money, that, that should not happen. Mm -hmm. But who knows if there's other factors, maybe there is additional value in programmability of taxation and embedding fees, which could be another conversation down the line, or maybe other tokens. Um, but but ideally, for, for now, I, I don't think so. It, it should stay one-to-one. One one. I, ah, there we go. 
my camera just went off for a second. Um, yeah, thank you, Diana, so much for that. There is, you know, it's always in my mind the question of two seemingly coexisting one digital, one uh, money product, um, like US dollar and whatever CBDC currency with, you know, that we will create if they're coexisting, but they're taking different use cases and being deployed and implemented for different things, you know, the question is open, like how is the, evalu the evaluation of this two going to be different and or similar and potentially completely be separate? Um, so thank you so much for giving your opinion about this. Um, all right, let's do a fun exercise quickly. Like from, if you put like your user perspective on, right? Like, and you are, now, um, from a from a user perspective, looking at the systems, right? And you have to your like you have already available some type of cryptocurrency. Um, I'm not gonna name any crypto because it doesn't matter. Like um, you're using your digital wallet. You have CB CBDC potentially available. Um, what are some of the like from the user perspective things? that you may want to see happen. And I know this is a big question, but I, I, I was just wondering out of curiosity, for example, should do I use both a private crypto and the uh, CBDC crypto? Or do I um, pick one? Or uh, do I still keep using digital money? Like in the future, as you see yourself progressive into these type of systems, like what are your thoughts around from the user perspective, usability of, of these tools? Uh, and purely from like, like, you know, like you make, you, like you make a salary, you, right? Like you have your salary and then is some, some of it going to come from some type of like, even like bank specific cryptocurrency? You know, is it like how do you envision the system to work? Because there's so many possibilities, but what would you want from a user perspective? Interesting. I don't think it depends on the infrastructure. Or go ahead, Sangita. Diana, go ahead. I only speak for Just go ahead. Oh, no. <laughs> um, I would I would say it depends on the level of acceptance and, and the infrastructure right now. Because we're seeing today a lot of the crypto world is disconnected in its functionality from the traditional banking system. And there's reasons why, but um, it's not like I can use my Bitcoin to pay for my coffee, like a lot of people say. Although um, in, in the DeFi world, uh, Terra in South Korea has, has done some interesting things to enable that functionality through, through cards. So uh, it depends on the level of interoperability and the level of acceptance. And as a user, the more seamless the solution and more, the more I don't notice the difference with the ways I pay today and what I'm used to today, the more I'd be, it'd be just easier to adopt, right? The, the more I don't even know what's in, in, in the background, right? As opposed to having to learn a new um, set of habits potentially. Totally. So, just to give an example, like real life example, for example, on Etsy, for, um, and you want to buy something on, on Etsy. Mm -hmm. And when you try to pay, you see like several options. One is like Visa MasterCard, like credit card option. One is like Apple Pay, mm -hmm. Google Pay, mm -hmm. and then you have the PayPal option. So 
you choose like okay i want to just like uh, my apple pay is like connected with the iphone i'm on my apple device and so i'm just gonna use apple pay or my computer is like connected with my paypal so i'm just gonna use paypal but i'm saying it from my own perspective so this is how i usually uh, do my payments so it definitely is gonna depend like how easier it is for me to use and the acceptance um about cryptocurrencies, one thing is like for sure that, it, I mean, regulators are fragmented and at the same time, users are fragmented as well. There are people who are risk averse. They don't use cryptocurrency. They don't invest in cryptocurrency. And there are people who believe in cryptocurrencies. So they are, they have cryptocurrencies. So it's, it's gonna depend on the uh, like behavioral aspects how easy it is for me to use, and so many other technological infrastructure and everything. So yes, I mean, we'll see. Like this is an exciting time, to be honest. <laughs> I love that. It sounds like we're even creating even more ways to diversify our financial investments or assets and categories of assets that we may have. Um, Diana, you mentioned DeFi a couple of times already. Can you give us a um, an intro of what DeFi is? And then Sangeeta, I'm gonna let you explain some of the uses of DeFi um, that are happening today. And yeah, no, feel free to also mention the examples. I just wanna boast you. Absolutely. Answer that question. I think DeFi has been a really interesting trend that has exploded in the past couple of years as I would kind of define it as a kind of overall movement toward decentralizing financial systems, whether it be legacy financial institutions, financial instruments, financial use cases. It's built not on banks, but on a tech stack. And as such, it runs on open systems that are heavily reliant on a community of engaged participants who literally have broken down the concept of a banking system into the basic Lego blocks to build specific financial services that are customized and tailored for, for different um, interests for the, for the community. And uh, it's built, again, as a tech stack, we have the basic smart contract layer, which in many cases has been Ethereum, but there's been others that have popped up. Um, and uh, that's basically the, the functionality that allows for automated transactions that occur as soon as certain conditions are met. That's what a smart contract is. So on top of that layer, then you have the DeFi primitives, which are the tools that are used to build these Lego blocks for the De DeFi applications. That the tools mm. include... Um, probably protocols for, for the use of smart contracts and stablecoin and, and mm -hmm. some sort of data, uses of data and tooling underlying. So once you have that set of basic functionalities, then you're going to be able to actually build specific applications. And on top of that, then you have the, the layer where, where you have decentralized exchanges, which uh, could be Uniswap, uh, balancer curve on top of that you have uh, functionalities that have to do with derivatives or with lending we've seen um 
huge alternatives in, in, in the world of DeFi lending as opposed to uh, mainstream lending in, in the traditional finance space because the interest rates are and the payouts are a lot, a lot higher. Uh, asset management, aggregators, uh, automated market makers. So, so a lot yeah. of interesting tools that are, are still getting figured out and developed as we speak. But overall, I would call it a really democratized form of, of creating access to finance through a really global, a truly global liquidity pool and, and creating a very level playing field for anyone to, who, who has a wallet to be able to interact with this. I love it. I, I think I understand the implication is creating micro financial systems, uh, potentially even community level, you know. Sangeeta, have you seen any examples of this and how it has been implemented? So, um, when, I mean, this concept of DeFi is so new and, and so novel, like all the implications are like emerging. I, I understand that what it means. So I don't try to define decentralized finance, to be honest, because uh, it, it gets like too complicated. I, I prioritize like three aspects. One is like decentralization. Uh, second is like smart contract, Diana mentioned, like it's, it's operated on smart contracts. And third is like the uh, use of stable points or, or some form of cryptocurrency. So the whole financial system, which I call a parallel economy, to be honest, because it acts like uh, the traditional financial system, but it's the manner, the way they operate, it's, a, it's decentralized in nature because of the technologies that are involved. So you can have like savings account, you can have like, you can do lend, uh, you can lend from organizations you can have like derivatives securities and all those of like aspects that we already see in the traditional system uh, but somehow we are not happy with it because they are like risk associated with it big we are not happy with big big techs or like big banks and etc so we either like try to venture into like try to like try out something new or but at the same time, this also like uh, indicates a great potential uh, in terms of like access to finance, which Diana already mentioned, and also financial inclusion perspective. For example, just to give a small example, like um, an SMEs who which do, do not which doesn't have like big uh, collateral, a physical asset, so they can collateralize their like stable of digital assets and can get like can borrow from those like decentralized companies. So those are the aspects which is very new, but at the same time promising. However, there are like another discourse uh, that I came across weaving with decentralized finance. There is like, this is called centralized finance. So the thing is decentralized finance is supposed to be uh, truly decentralized where community is going to be, uh, they, they are the ones who operate the whole thing. It's permissionless, public blockchain, open source, open source protocol. But then, of course, like this also shows like uh, some other risk factor, which centralized, I would say like permission blockchain protocol, they try to just like, okay, uh, minimize this risk and try to like bring some sort of like centralization. So 
they have like their own companies, like which is operate, which operates on uh, permission blockchain. So it is, it's evolving, and uh, to keep up with those things, to be to be honest, sometimes it's difficult. But yes, happening, trying to be updated on those. But these are the like uh, uh, crucial aspects of decentralized finance. Thank you, Sangeeta. Um, believe it or not, we are at time. Uh, and I would like to ask um, one last question about the topic to each of you. Um, what is the most um, interesting tool um, or the, the thing that you're following the most personally? For, you know, professionally, you do this for a living, but what are, what are some of the trends or tools or concepts or pieces of literature or, or even things that you're currently doing in your personal life to that supports this topic? Um, and, and where is your passion driving you uh, towards at this point? And Diana, you can start, Well, I please. follow a lot of the, and Sankita mentioned them before, the, the Bank for International Settlements and, and their, their research, I find to be very cutting edge and on point, uh, and, and it makes sense. I think they've done a great job of aligning stakeholders and bringing people to work together on a lot of these implementations. And because um, it takes it takes a lot of different partnerships. Uh, but I would definitely recommend their their work on the CBDC side. Absolutely. What about you, Sangeeta? What do you think? is also like doing a lot of good work as well and, and the way they collaborate with different stakeholders and uh, try to bring uh, like bring up sorry like there are some noises upstairs probably <laughs> yeah so uh, no their worries. research definitely um, I, I always like look at their research um, aside from that um, blockchain governance is something like I'm really interested in and uh, we are uh, the digital economics as a part of like uh, my work with the digital economics. Uh, we are working on like some uh, collaborative community governance aspect of blockchain where we are trying to utilize uh, the Ostrom's idea of like nested enterprise. And it's interesting because I will be all, uh, my research is like how to uh, how to include that like those aspects in the in the blockchain governance protocol. Because we say like it's decentralized a lot of times. I mean, as I mentioned, like in order to keep some sort of like control, uh, the governance is not truly decentralized. So uh, those are the areas like I, 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 aside from my PhD, I also like take huge interest in blockchain governance and how it can be truly decentralized. Uh, so that the promise that blockchain showed initially with the launch of the Bitcoin um, can be utilize or like fulfilled in future. Awesome. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. Diana Sangeeta, where can people find you? Uh, email address or <laughs> I'm based in New York City. So if anybody comes to New York City, definitely. Uh, and my email address is like Sangeeta uh, at connect.hku.hk. So, and yes, if anybody wants. Yeah, I'm also based in New York. Um, LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. 
Twitter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would love to. Yeah. Um, Twitter, Diana Zalis. And uh, usually I post my Forbes articles and, and just the stuff I find interesting. Mm -hmm. Nice. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for covering this awesome, awesome topic. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us.